Thank you. Okay, can you hear me? Okay. Good morning, everyone. Ah, oh, come on. Come on. That's it's it's ten o'clock in the morning. You should be awake. Okay. Good morning. Oh man. Okay. Now I'm awake. Cool. Okay. So around Christmas time, it's conventional to tell stories. So I'm going to tell you a story today. Uh, it's it's about thinking machines, which admittedly isn't the most Christmassy of stories. So I've thrown in a few elves and uh, hats on the slides to try and make it a little more Christmassy. It's a story in three parts, and it begins with the story of Dr. Turing's marvelous machines. So there once was a young man, Alan Turing, with a smashing uh, Christmas hat, which wasn't on the original picture. And Alan Turing, who's heard of Alan Turing before? Uh, a few of you, OK. So Alan Turing is a, was a young man who was a brilliant mathematician. Uh, and because he was a brilliant mathematician, during the Second World War, he was brought to a secret place called Bletchley Park, where he and other mathematicians worked on breaking the code that the Germans were using to communicate with their submarines and threatening ships in the Atlantic. So he was a code breaker as well. But because of all he learned while he was learning to break codes, he got very interested in inventions and trying to create new ways of solving problems, new ways of thinking about problems and new ways of computing them that completely changed the world. And one of the things he liked to think about in his, with his inventor hat on, which was very much like a Christmas hat apparently, was the idea of thinking machines. The idea that a machine could do the same thing that the human brain does, think, desire, act, love, feel sad, all these things that we seem to think are strictly human emotions, he thought maybe machines could do that too. Now today, this isn't a completely ridiculous idea. Who's seen Wally? -E? Oh man, oh, okay, most of you. Okay, well, Wally's -E a, a, a great movie. Oh, very excited. <laughs> Wally's -E a movie about a robot, which is absolutely adorable. And so Wally -E can't, Wall -E can't talk, but he, uh, even though he can't talk, he makes us feel a lot of things during the movie. He makes us feel happy when he's happy and sad when he's sad. He makes decisions, he has desires, he acts upon them. Even though he can't speak, it's pretty uh, obvious that Wally is intelligent, that he has human-like qualities, and that's why we like him so much. And Wally's not the only sort of thinking machine we see in movies today. Here's a few other ones. There's the robot from iRobot who wants nothing but to be free. There's the uh, droids from Star Wars who uh, want to be safe. <laughs> and it doesn't have to be robots. Also in movies, you see things like HAL in 2001 Space Odyssey, which is an evil computer. And also, if you've seen the Iron Man series, uh, Tony Stark has Jarvis, who is his uh, helpful artificial intelligence. And most of these machines can talk. They can feel. They feel happy, sad. They crack jokes. They make us laugh on screen. They have these very human qualities. And throughout literature and cinema and a human society, now the idea that a machine could think is not so ridiculous. Or is it? So obviously, those machines can think. But would you say that every machine can think? Obviously, a calculator doesn't think. I mean, it does arithmetic very well. It's capable of computing sums and products and logarithms much faster than I could. In fact, I don't think even if I sat down with a piece of paper, I could do everything a, a calculator does. Um, so they're very good at one thing. They're very clever at mathematics. But you really wouldn't think that this thing could start talking to you, it would have emotions and desires, and you know, uh, be capable of learning new things. It's really set, it has a fixed set of instructions, and that's what it does very well. If, you think, a if a, you think a calculator is intelligent still, or maybe it's a gray area, think about something like an, a motor, right? OK, they're very cleverly designed. So there, there's a lot of intelligence that goes into making these things. They use fuel very efficiently. Some even do some clever things like you know, use fuel more efficiently on a motorway and less efficiently on a, or more, or less, more, more presumptuously on a, in a city. Some turn themselves off when they're on fire. So they, they, they have some clever stuff. But would you think that a motor can think? Obviously not. So we have some kind of machines that can think in our mind, and some where you think, wait, it's ridiculous. That doesn't think at all. So what sort of machines can think in general? Well, we have certain requirements in mind when we're thinking about thinking machines. Uh, we want that sort of machine to be able to do anything. And by anything, I don't mean you know, sprout wings and fly or you know, solve, like, do things that physics doesn't permit them to. But we mean that a thinking machine should be able to do anything that any other thinking being can do. Be creative, love, hate, etc. Uh, a thinking machine should be able to receive and use information. 
This is what we do every day. I see a car coming from me, I step out of the way. You know, it's like uh, we, we react to our environment, we act upon it, we uh, use information every day in our brain. And a calculator can do that, a motor not so much. And finally, we'd expect the thinking machine to be able to, taught, to be taught, or at least it can be able to learn from experience. Uh, this is something a calculator definitely can't do. It's not going to sprout out new ways of doing mathematics uh, because it, it's wired to do one thing and one thing well. Uh, but we, babies, uh, children, humans, uh, animals, we can learn from experience. We're capable of developing new skills. That's why you're in school. I know it doesn't sound like a lot of fun, but you know, the, the main point is that we can be taught. So these are some sort of things we'd want a machine that can think to be able to do. So Alan Turing thought about this, and he thought, OK, what sort of machine could I build that will do these things? And the answer is something known as a Turing machine, which has elves. Um, and a Turing machine seems very complicated, but it's, in fact, very simple. You can think of a Turing machine as a very small box that moves on a tape in two dimensions. It can move left or right along a very long tape. And this machine can do three things. It can read from the tape, so it can look underneath it. It's like, oh, I see a 1 or I see a 0. It can read symbols. It can write to the tape, so it can erase the symbol and replace it with something else. And finally, it can move along the tape left and right. That sounds like a very simple machine, right? Not very complicated at all. And it turns out these machines are very important. In fact, you probably use a Turing machine or something like a Turing machine every day. And I'll explain why. What makes Turing machines important is that we can give them recipes by changing a few wires in the box. And that with the right recipe, a Turing machine can do almost anything with information that a human brain can, and maybe everything that a human brain can. What do we mean by recipe? Well, you, you know what a recipe is, right? So who, who here cooks with their parents or alone, on their own? And that's, that's, that's fewer hands than I expected. Really? Oh, that's, that's, OK, well, then most of you don't cook with your parents. You're like me. When I was a kid, I was, I was still a terrible cook. But with, my brother and sister loved to cook with my parents, and I was terrible at it. So sorry, mom, if you're watching this video later. Um, by recipe, we mean exactly what you'd expect. So here's a recipe for apple pie. And you're probably thinking, why is this guy talking about apple pie when he's talking about thinking machines? You'll see. So a recipe for apple pie, if you're cheating, is the first step is you buy the pie dough. Normally, you should make the pie dough, but I'm really lazy, so I just buy it in the store. And you take six apples, which is your second step. The third step is for each apple, you peel the apple and you slice the apple thinly. Following that, you put the pie dough in the pan, you put the apples in the pie dough, you add some cinnamon, lemon juice, put the uncooked pie in the oven, cook for 40 minutes, and then you can eat. Who thinks they can follow this recipe? Quite a, quite, a, quite a few of you, right? OK, that's pretty good. So what is, what is a recipe? We're talking about cooking recipes, but what is, what is a recipe in general? Well, it's a series of steps. Do this, do this, do this. The steps are followed in order. This makes sense. If you put the pie in the oven before you put the apples in, you're going to have a rather disappointing apple pie. And some steps require repetition. So for example, for each apple in my bunch, I'm going to peel it and then slice it. Um, some steps might be too complicated. So the recipe I gave you, some of you can follow it. I can't. I have no problem admitting this. I really need steps, when I look at a recipe, to be broken down into as simple steps as possible. Right? So for example, step nine, cook for 40 minutes. If I just follow this, I'm probably going to burn the hell out of the pie. It's just not going to go very well. So I'd go back to the person who wrote the recipe and say, listen, I need some more details in step nine. So they need to expand it. And for example, they could expand it by saying, OK, to cook the pie, you preheat the oven to 200 degrees C. You put the pie on the top shelf. You wait for 40 minutes, and you remove the pie. So what makes a good recipe for cooking? Uh, it tells you what you need, the ingredients. And this makes sense. This should, um, hopefully, this is all common sense. If, you, if you're making an apple pie and you forget to buy the apples, or no one told you to buy the apples, you're going to have a bit of a problem when you get to that step. It tells you what you're making, the product. Normally, in culinary recipes, this is the top of the the top of the recipe in big, bold letters, because otherwise you're in for a bad surprise at the end if you were expecting to make a dessert and what you've got is a roast chicken. And it has all the steps needed to turn the ingredients into a product. That's what a recipe does. The steps tell you how to turn the ingredients into the result. And finally, each step is simple enough in the recipe for the audience to understand it. And simple enough is very dependent on who the audience is. 
the people who put their hands up when I said, can you do the recipe, you were probably fine with step nine. I would have burnt the pie. So for me, I need a very detailed recipe. Some of you might not need the big detailed recipe. Gordon Ramsay can probably take the recipe and like throw it out and then just start cooking the apple pie as long as he knows he's making apple pie. So uh, simple enough is a very relative notion. Turing machines need recipes just like we need recipes, except instead of making apple pie, um, they're going to be making, they're going to just be changing the values on the tape. So the uh, ingredients are just the ingredients you have on the tape, the symbols on the tape. The output, so instead of making apple pie, they're just going to give you another set of symbols on the tape. So their ingredients and their output are data. And the steps have to be very simple. So for us, the notion of simplicity for a recipe depends on how good a cook you are. For Turing machines, it's pretty simple. We know that they can read, write, and move. So the steps have to be read, involve reading, writing, and moving. So for example, if there, you can have a simple recipe that says step one, while there's a one on the tape, you move right along the tape. And step two, while there's a zero on the tape, you write a one and you terminate. Don't worry if this seems dry and overly complicated, but this recipe will take any sequence of ones and just add one to the end. So it just looks at all the ones and then adds an extra one. It's a plus one recipe, right? It's very simple. But a Turing machine can follow it, whatever's on the tape. So imagine now that you had a recipe book that was a little more indirect. You have a recipe book, let's say these little calendars that have the recipe of the day, and it says this simple two-step recipe. Step one, look on page 29 of your favorite recipe book. Step two, follow the recipe on that page. What this recipe asks you to do is simply follow another recipe, right? Well, there are Turing machines that can do exactly this. Instead of being wired to follow a particular recipe, they're told this very simple recipe is look on the tape and read the recipe that's given to you and then do that recipe on the rest of the data. And for this reason, these are called universal Turing machines. And this is a very important concept. These machines are capable of being taught exactly what to do by giving a general recipe that's on the tape. They can be given any, any arbitrary recipe. So I said that Turing machines are something you use every day. Universal Turing machines are effectively linked to modern day computers. The reading head, the thing that moves along the tape, is what we call the processor in a computer. It's what takes the information and manipulates it. The tape is the memory. It's where you store the information you're modifying. The recipes are what we call programs, so things that allow the computer to do certain things. And finally, the ingredients are the input data, and the product is the output data. So ingredients might be you clicking your mouse or pressing a button, and the output data might be you shooting the dragon on the screen. So computers are just big Turing machines, or seeing it the other way around, Turing machines are the most general, fundamental form of modern computers. A very simple machine, it does three things, and with that you can do everything a computer can, and a computer can do everything a Turing machine can. So they are the most fundamental machine that can be taught. What do you want to use programs for? Well, in case you're not, in case you do, this terminology is new to you, programs, as I said, tell machines what to do, so some programs are used to crack codes, like the ones developed by Turing in the Second World War. Some allow you to play games. Who likes playing video games? OK, yeah. Oh, man, there's some very excited people up there. Yeah. <laughs> OK, so video games are just programs. Some programs run your computer, so they do the everyday things that allow you to check your email. Some programs keep planes in the air. So programs aren't necessarily things that you use on a computer, but they might be in computers on planes, on satellites, that allow us to go into space. Programs are what allow us to do most of these things. I mean, you need fuel on a rocket, but... And programs are ultimately only limited by imagination. They're the thing that allow you to get the computer to do something. There are physical limits, how much memory you have, so how much time you have. But those computers are always getting more powerful, always faster, always more memory. So what you can get a computer to do is really only limited by what you want it to do, by how you're going to get to do it, it to do so. And to prove, we, we've been talking about uh, a man so far in this lecture, but I don't want to give you the impression that computer science is a man's world. Some of the most fundamental contributors to the birth of computer science as we see it today were women. Uh, one is Lady Ada Lovelace, who was the daughter of Lord Byron, the poet, and she was a brilliant mathematician in the 18th or 19th century, can't remember, uh, who developed the first programs. And uh, Grace Hopper is another influential woman in this field who was an ad American rear admiral who developed a new way of allowing us to communicate with computers in a way that's closer to human language instead of ones and zeros. So women have had a very large impact, even though I'm talking about Turing a lot today. 
So back to the big question. Turing machines can do anything with the right program. That's the thesis here. Does anything include thinking? Right? If can machines think, if they can do technically anything, can we give, if we give a Turing machine the right program, can it think? Well, Alan Turing thinks yes. Well, he, of course he'd say so. He came up with the Turing machine with the concept that it could do everything that a brain could. So there's a famous quote, which is that the idea behind digital computers may be explained by saying that they can do anything that a human computer can. By human computer, he means the brain. So for him, there's just no difference, right? They might look different. One's tape and a little machine head, and the other one is a blob of gray goo. But fundamentally, Alan Turing thinks, because they're doing the same thing, that a machine could definitely do everything that the brain can. So to summarize the first part of our story, Turing machines are the general form of computers. Turing machines can do virtually anything if they're given the right recipe, if they're given the right program, as long as they're told how to do it. And finally, for this reason, Alan Turing says, yeah, sure, machines can think. A Turing machine can think because it can do anything that the human brain can. So it seems like we've solved the problem. Unfortunately, the story is a bit longer than just 15 minutes. So on to part two, which is the Turing test. Who's heard of the Turing test before? Oh, a few of you. Okay, well, that's better than nothing. Anyway, so to introduce this test, uh, let me spoil the fun a little by telling you how do we build a thinking machine. Turing says we can build a thinking machine. How do we build one? The short answer is we have absolutely no clue yet. It's a very, very hard problem. We don't even know. We know how to get started, but we don't know how to, to get one. And this should be fairly obvious to you. Has anyone seen a thinking robot walking through the streets? No, right. <laughs> not yet. So not only do we not know how to build a thinking machine yet, we don't even know if it's possible. Alan Turing says yes. Alan Turing's a genius, but geniuses make mistakes, so we can't be so sure that he's right. And whether it's possible or not, it's certainly one of the hardest problems in computer science. Computer science deals with a bunch of different problems, from trying to model how the heart works, to trying to detect badgers underground, to trying to keep planes in the air, keeping robots communicating with each other. But the, the general problem of building a thinking machine is one of the hardest problems, which is what makes it so exciting. But equally as important as building a thinking machine is having a way where you can know that you've successfully built a thinking machine. So if, if we have no way of telling that we've built a thinking machine, then we can hammer away at you know, robots all day long. We'll never know when we're finished, right? I mean, one of them might become conscious and like, destroy the world like Skynet and Terminator. That would be the bad result. Um, but we won't have the nice scientific conclusion that we've succeeded in building a thinking machine. So to, successfully know, to know if we've successfully built a thinking machine, we also need to think, even before building one, about a way of testing this. We need to have a test. And the test that's used to detect if a machine can think is called the Turing test. And to explain this, we're going to do one on stage today. So we're going to play a little game. And for this, I'm going to need a volunteer from the audience. OK, uh, young young lady. Okay, so, so, here's your Santa hat. Hello? This, this, this microphone is obviously not a thinking machine. Anyone? Okay, let me, let me try another mic. Can you figure out how to turn? Hello? Oh okay. <laughs> so, what's your name? Lynn. Lynn, hello, Lynn. So, you're going to be our examiner for the Turing test. So, your job is going to be to sit on this chair. So, I'm going to have you sit down here right now, have a seat. And your job, you're, you're the all powerful examiner in this test. I'm going to put this partition up. And you have, the, you have the fun job. So on the other side of this partition, which you cannot see anymore, is going to be a series of three uh, participants that I'm going to randomly choose from the audience. So get ready to put your hands up. And what you're going to do, calm down. 
what you're going to do is you're going to have a short conversation with them, maybe five, six questions. Okay? So you can ask them any question. You can say hello, goodbye, are you a robot? You can ask any question you want. They're allowed to lie to you. You can't ask them to show themselves, right? They, they, they're just going to answer. But they're going to answer however they want. At the end of this conversation, I want you to tell me if you think you were talking to a human being or to a computer. Okay, so far so good? Yeah. Okay, so it's very simple. I'm going to call some people up, you're going to ask them some questions, and you're going to need to decide if they're a human being or a computer. Okay, so I need another volunteer. I'll let one, of, one of the kids from over there. Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, do come down. So you're going to have to close your eyes. Close your eyes. Yeah. I, I got some other guests. Okay, I'm randomly selecting three people from the audience. And I need one, one kid. Okay. Okay, you can open your eyes now. Okay, have a seat. Okay, so uh, we've got our examiner on this side, and we've got test subject number one, test subject number two, and test subject number three, who might be humans or they might be computers. You, d you can't give them any hints. Okay, so let's begin. You're going to have to ask questions. You're now talking to test subject number one. What's your name? Liam. <laughs> How old are you? Thirteen. <laughs> uh, would you go out with my friend Lydia? <laughs> <laughs> no. Yes or no? No. <laughs> um, do you like maths? Do you like maths? Maths. Nice. No. <laughs> you go to school. Do you go to school? Yes. <laughs> How many questions that? Yeah, you ask some more if you want. Let's just hear sports or something. Uh, do you like sports? Yeah. <laughs> okay, great. Okay, so you've asked a few questions, Liam. Or the, the test subject number one. Do you think test subject number one is a robot? No. Or a computer? It's no? a boy. It's a boy. Okay. okay. <laughs> Excellent. Okay, so test subject number one, thank you very much. Pass the mic to test subject number two. Okay, test subject number two. You're now talking to test subject number two. Uh, are you a daughter? <laughs> no. Uh, Speak loudly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you said no. Uh, are you a boy? No. What's your name? Um, I'm Kaoshi. What? Kaoshi. What? Ka Ask again. What's your name? I'm Kaoshi. Okay. Kaoshi. Kaoshi. How old are you? 56. 56? I might have brought an old man or an old woman. Who knows? Um, um, do you like sports? Yes, I do. <laughs> what school do you go to? What school do you go to? Um, Oxford University. Maybe, I don't know, does it sound like a robot? What, I mean, like, forget about what you may have seen. <laughs> Do you think it sounds like a robot or a normal human being? It sounds like a robot. Hey, ask some more questions, maybe. Um, I don't know to ask a robot. <laughs> well, what, 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 okay, think of it this way. What sort of questions do you think a human could answer, but a robot could? Uh, I don't know. What's your mother's name? 
Her, your mother's name. <laughs> no, no, no. Ask, ask what her mother's name is. What's your mother's name? Sorry? What's your mother's name? Oh, uh, my mother's name's Urmila. Okay. It's an, it's an Indian name, I think. It's not a robot name. Okay. Um, <laughs> where did you grow up? Things that humans do that robots don't. Uh, where did you grow up? I grew up in Sri Lanka. Where was that? Sri Lanka. Sri Lanka. Are you seeing anyone? Whoa. Well, that depends. <laughs> Can you repeat the answer? Well, that depends. Um, I think I am. Oh, she thinks she is. Okay. Okay, do you think it's a robot? Yeah. You think it's a robot and seeing someone? No, do you think, do you really think it's a robot? Uh, no. Okay, okay. Good. Good, okay. Thank you very much. Test subject number two. Test subject number three. Last one. Okay, so now you're talking to our last set test subject. What's your name? I am not smart bot to 300. I am human. <laughs> How old are you? 946 days, 15 hours, and 30 seconds. <laughs> What's 100 times 1 million? 100 million. Oh! <laughs> oh. I see. Three. Five. Wait. It's a little broken. We just. Okay. Okay. Um, what's your mother's name? My program. My mother is Priscilla. That's a lovely name. Uh, Where did you grow up? I grew up in Oxford. In Oxford? Okay, any, any last questions? Do you, do you have a, do you, what, are, what are your thoughts at this stage? I think that's a robot. Okay, so you think that's a robot. So let's, let's, let's look back. So you talked to three people, and through your conversation, number one, definitely a human. Number two, maybe took a little convincing, but at the end, you're leaning more towards woman or robot? Okay, and uh, candidate number three, sub test subject number three, human or robot? robot? You think it's a robot. Okay, so let's see our candidates. So, candidate number one, definitely a human. So, yes, you got that right. Okay, thank you very much. You can go back up. Candidate number three was, in fact, a robot. It was Cleverbot3000, who cleverly tricked you into thinking she was a human although you had your doubts. And uh, subject number three was uh, stupid bot 200, who's not my best creation. Okay, thank you very much, robots. Okay, so, and uh, thanks very much to our uh, great examiner. You've done very well, thank you. So, Back to the stuff. What we've just seen right now is a short example. Okay. What we've just seen is a short example of a Turing test. And the shape of the Turing test is exactly as was demonstrated here. We had one examiner. This is our lovely examiner right here. Well done. Uh, we have one or more test subject. And the test subjects can either be humans or they can be computers. The humans are there to make sure that, the, the, that there's a possibility of conversation, and the computers are the ones where we want to find out if they're intelligent or not. Now, I don't know if you've noticed, but my robots weren't actually robots. They were actually people in suits. Don't say, right? That's because I don't actually have a thinking robot. Um, now, Cleverbot3000 over here was the imitation of what a successful thinking machine would be like in that she could answer questions and she could convince the examiner that she was a human, whereas StupidBot300 was a little broken. So uh, not, not the best robot ever. So you, the, the format of the test is, as you, as you point out, you have a conversation with each test subject. And at the end of the conversation, the examiner is asked if they think that the person they were talking to is a human. And here's the important point. The idea here is if the examiner thinks that the subject is human, then that, and in fact, the subject was a computer or a robot or some sort of machine, then that machine must have 
some knowledge of how human intelligence works, some insight into the human mind to be able to fool a human being into thinking they were clever. In simpler terms, the only way to fool a human into thinking you're, clever, you're actually a, another human is to, un, is to be intelligent. Um, and that's, that's the basic idea behind this test. A computer has to be able to fool a human into thinking that they're intelligent. Now in practice, the Turing test is not done in person like this. You need to communicate with the candidates via terminal. It's a little too easy by listening to the voice or seeing them that, to see if they're humans, right? Or robots. Uh, but today, to make it interesting, we did it on stage. So the Turing test, in many respects, has the shape of a, of a scientific experiment. We are testing whether or not something is true. So I want to briefly talk about the, the general form of a scientific experiment. Scientific experiments aren't something we do for fun. They're something we do to test a hypothesis. So a hypothesis is a, a question we have or a statement we believe to be true, and we want to check if it's true. Um, a scientific experiment, to be a good one, needs to be repeatable or reproducible, and reproducible. So you need to be able to do it several times, and it needs to be reproducible in that you need to expect the same results every time. So it makes sense if, I, if I'm uh, testing that when I mix uh, chemical A with chemical B, it blows up. If, I've done, if, if, if my experiment is good and actually tells me that they do blow up, they should blow up every time, if I, if I use the same mixtures. Um, a test has to, an experiment has to have controlled parameters. Parameters is just a fancy way of expressing the things that can change within an experiment. So if my experiment is how long does it take for a Santa hat to reach the ground, right? So I can repeat it several times and time it every time. So it's about, you know, one second. Um, the, the parameter here is the height. So if I, if, I, if I want to be able to reproduce the same result every time, uh, I need to be able to, I need to drop it from the same height and observe the results. Obviously, it's going to be a different time if I drop it from lower and a longer, uh, longer time if I drop it from higher. So parameters are the things that can vary in an experiment. Um, it must also follow a strict experimental protocol, which is just the steps you do in the experiment to get the result. So is the Turing test an experiment? Well, the hypothesis is intelligent machines can fool humans. That's the basic thing we're testing here is, is a machine intelligent enough to fool a human into believing that it's also a human? The protocol is exactly what we saw, is that the examiner talks to subjects and then makes a decision. Is it repeatable? Definitely. You could reproduce what we did here on stage at home with your parents and check if they're humans. Um, you should get the answer yes, unless they haven't had their morning coffee. Is it reproducible? Well, that's the interesting question here is, you know, a scientific experiment like ones we do in physics or chemistry are easy to reproduce because we have very controlled parameters. Conversations, which are the, the basis of the Turing test, are a little different in that when you have a conversation, even if you ask the same questions, you might get different replies, slightly different flow of conversation, simply because it's hard to remember or mimic a conversation, right? We don't always have the same conversations, even, even if we talk about the same topics. And finally, what are the parameters of the Turing test? If it is an experiment, there needs to be things that can change. Um, they're probably something like the duration of the conversation. Here, I asked our um, test experimenter to just ask six or seven questions. You might want your Turing test to last an hour, a day, or you might say that 10 minutes is enough. Another parameter is maybe what questions the examiner can and should ask. Uh, should they be able to ask the test subject to show themselves? Should they be allowed to ask if they are a robot or are these things that aren't very informative? So thinking a bit about what the questions you should ask are uh, quite important as well. And finally, another parameter is to draw a conclusion, we need to determine how certain the examiner needs to be. So obviously in life, certainty is not something that's you know, yes or no, right? Um, I can be fairly certain that you know, when I drop this remote, it will fall. I might be a little less certain that I'll like what's at lunch today. And I'm completely uncertain about what the weather will be like in a week, because that's what the British weather is like. Actually, I'm fairly certain it's going to be gray and rainy, but uh, who knows. Um, so uh, our examiner here was fairly certain that our first, was very certain, in fact, that our first test subject was a human boy. Was moderately certain that our second test subject was a human woman. And once again, pretty fairly certain, I believe, that the last subject was a pretty stupid robot. So how certain you need to be to actually say, yes, it's intelligent, is a good question.
So if it is an experiment, is it a good experiment? Um, it's not certain that the Turing test provides reproducible results because it's a conversation that can vary, as I said. The right parameters aren't obvious, so how long should you talk for? We'll talk about this a bit more in the third part of this story, but it's not clear how long the test should be and what questions you should ask. Unlike a scientific experiment in physics or chemistry where you know exactly how much of product A and product B you need to mix to get a reproducible result. And even if they were, is this really the best we have for testing intelligence? Now, Alan Turing was a genius. He came up with this test. Once again, geniuses make mistakes, and geniuses don't necessarily give you the best kind of thing that there is. So there might be a better test out there. And I'll talk a bit in the third part about how we might be able to design a better test. Um, but it's still an important thing to consider because even for all its faults, coming up with a good experiment, coming up with a good way of testing intelligence is something we need to address. It's as important, as I said earlier, as solving the engineering and mathematical problems behind artificial intelligence. We need to resolve this question before we build intelligent computers. So it's quite a fundamental question to look at. So to quickly summarize what we did on stage here, the Turing test is a test that aims to detect intelligence. It aims to do this um, by having a conversation with, uh, with robots or humans and try and separate them. It's pretty easy to understand. Would, is everyone here pretty confident they'd be able to do this on their own? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's really simple, right? You just have a conversation and you decide. So it's easy to understand, which is why it's very appealing as an experiment. But it's not clearly a proper scientific experiment because there are many open questions. How long should it be? What questions should I ask? How do I know if the test is successful? There's too much uncertainty, uh, and for that reason, some people think it's not the best scientific experiment for determining intelligence that we could have. Which brings us to part three. Now, you need more than just science to do this. And I'm going to show you that you need to bring in more than just science, mathematics, and engineering into the equation if you want to address the problems of thinking machines, of how we detect thinking machines, and how we uh, can direct research. So think about this. How many ways are there to start a conversation? There are a, there are a lot, right? But OK, so um, let's, is one of these mics still on? OK, so who wants, who wants to start a conversation? OK, so start a conversation with me. Wagwan. OK. Let's pretend for a second I know what that means. Um, I'm sure, is, is that what's going on? Okay. Is that something people say today? I, I feel you're making me feel really old. Okay, Wagwan. Okay. Uh, who else wants to start a conversation? Lisa. Lisa. Okay, just how, Olivia. How do you start a conversation? Hello, right? How? Hello, uh, someone else. How are you? Okay, so there are, there are quite a few ways to start a conversation, but you'll notice that if you meet someone in the street, you're typically going to start a conversation saying, hello, how are you, how do you do, wagwan, uh, apparently. Uh, maybe you're going to introduce yourself saying, hello, my name is, or maybe what is your name. There are a bunch of ways to start a conversation, but there's a very similar pattern to the ways we normally start conversations. What if I walked up to you in the street and instead of saying hello, I came to you and said, the sky is blue today and the sun is beautiful and I stubbed my toe, what does it mean? You'd think I was an idiot or you think that I was crazy, but most importantly, it wouldn't seem like a normal way to start a conversation, right? You'd, you'd be able to continue the conversation, like it wouldn't shut down or you might run away, but you'd be able to continue the conversation, but it would seem strange, it would seem out of place. A simple related question is, how many ways can you think of ordering a soft drink? Let's say some lemonade. So let's, who wants to volunteer to order lemonade for me? I don't have any lemonade. Anyone? Yes, yes. Can I have a cup of Sprite? A cup of Sprite, OK. Uh, anyone else want to order a lemonade for me? Anyone? Yes? OK. Someone else? Okay. Okay, order a can you order a lemonade? Anyone? Can I have a lemonade? Okay, okay, so can I, have, can I have a Sprite? Can I have a lemonade? I'd like a lemonade, please. 
You over there, if you shout it. Did, did, did you have a question? Okay, no. Okay, so, so there, you can, obviously, most of the ways of ordering a lemonade are going to be of the form, can I have a lemonade? I'd like a lemonade, please. Now imagine you're the waiter, and I walk up to you, and I say, I would be most pleased if forthwith you provided me with a carbonated beverage by the name of lemonade. What would you think? You'd think I'm crazy, right? I mean, you'd probably get me the lemonade. You'd probably ask for a bigger tip. But you, you, you'd understand what I meant. But it would seem very strange. So we always seem to prefer these normal-sounding expressions for these everyday occurrences, right? For these everyday acts of conversation. We prefer simple, normal occurrences rather than these overly complicated things. Now we can understand, we can understand the overly complicated ways of asking for lemonade, of saying hello, of starting a conversation, because humans are creative. But why do you think that we prefer the simple ways? Because humans are lazy. And I don't mean lazy in a bad way. I mean it's a rational, optimal way of acting. If you try and use a complicated expression to ask for a lemonade, it, it requires a little bit of thinking. You need to think, uh, imagine a new way of saying it. It, become, it kind of hurts your head. It's tiring. Thinking is tiring. And so for everyday ways of dealing with conversational acts, like ordering a lemonade, saying hello, saying goodbye, um, greeting people, introducing yourself, we like to rely on conversational patterns. The shorter a conversation is, the more we rely on patterns. This is empirically, you can observe this, rather, in reality. It's like when you have short conversations, like you just cross someone in the street, you say, what's up? They say, cool, or, you know, or wagwan, or, you know, you have very short conversations, and you rely incredibly often on these patterns for everyday acts. The longer a conversation gets, the more you need to be creative, the more you need to escape these patterns to continue the conversation. Computers are very good at just memorizing patterns, so that's not hard. But they're not very good at breaking patterns, at being creative. So a good Turing test should be one that's long enough uh, to escape the conversational patterns, to use human creativity to trick the machine. Another question is, what questions should be asked? So the Turing test uh, has no limits on what questions you can ask. You can ask anything, and the, uh, the interviewee, the test subject, can lie. But what questions would be best at tricking a robot? Our examiner had to think about a few of these. So let's look at what questions are easy for machines. Which of these questions do you think that Google or Wolfram Alpha, which is kind of like Google, can answer? What is 2 plus 2? Who thinks Google can answer this? OK, yeah. What, is, what time is it now? You think that's easy to answer? Yes. And uh, who was the fifth British Prime Minister? OK. Does anyone here know who the fifth British Prime Minister was? It was William. No, it's not David Cameron. <laughs> it, it was uh, William Cavendish. I didn't know this, but Google taught me. Anyway, so general no for a computer, general knowledge, especially in the age of the internet, general knowledge questions are easy. They're simple, because you can simply look this up in a database, look this up on Wikipedia, look this up on the internet, and the computers can get the answer. So if you try and trick a computer by seeing what it doesn't know, you're in for a bad time, because they can answer a lot of these questions, more of these questions than a human can, as long as they're very general knowledge questions. So let's think for a bit about what sort of questions are hard for a computer to answer. Um, so what sort of questions do you think are hard for a computer to answer? Yes. Okay. You saw. <laughs> so yes, so questions about the conversation. If you ask uh, a, co a computer, what was the first question I asked you, it might not remember. Most of these chatbots don't have a memory of the conversation because you need to memorize a lot of stuff, especially in a long conversation. Um, the sort of questions which are hard to answer are ones which are called either contextual or intentional, which are two fancy words which I'll explain. Uh, so here's a few examples to explain them. What did you mean by that? Why do you think I would say this? The sort of questions that are very hard for a computer to answer are questions which are about beliefs, about the conversation, about the topic, or require explaining things in more detail. Because the computer, to be able to answer this sort of question, 
needs to keep track of everything you've been talking about and link them together and sort of, you know, use this very local kind of knowledge to solve these problems. We're very capable of doing this. When we're having a conversation, we keep track of what the person said, and if you don't, then the, pe the pre people you're talking to are going to think you're not paying attention and communication breaks down. But when we're having a conversation, as humans, we remember what we said, we can uh, you know, explain things in a bit more detail, we have ideas that formulate in our head about what the conversation is about, and we can ask each other about that. Computers have no idea how to do this. They're very good at general knowledge, but very contextual knowledge that's specific to the context of the conversation, or intentional knowledge, which is about what is being discussed, about what the other party believes. These are very difficult for a computer. So, when we think about designing a better test, either through improving the Turing test or designing a new one, what do we need to think about? Well, we, um, sorry, we need, yeah, what do we need to think about? Well, we need to think about the length of the test, since it obviously matters, especially if we're having a conversation, and the content matters. So exactly what sort of questions we're asking uh, determine how successful the test is going to be. If we ask questions that are general knowledge, or if we rely on patterns, the test is going to be too easy for a machine to pass. And the Turing test doesn't tell you you should have a long conversation. And it doesn't tell you that you should ask intentional or contextual questions. It just says have a conversation. So you could create, you could do a Turing test and be convinced that a computer is intelligent simply because you didn't ask the right questions that a human would answer and a computer can't. So how do we design a better test? What do we need to think about? Um, the two things we were basically thinking about, and when I was talking about why the length should matter and what sort of questions you should ask, is we were thinking, how can we trick a machine? How can we ask it or do something that a, that a machine can't react to, but a human is good at reacting to? Creativity, humans are good with, machines are bad. Patterns, humans use a lot, but machines are good at. So obviously, we need to think more about creativity than about patterns. Creativity is a limit for machines. And patterns are something that's too common for humans, but very good for machines. So obviously, we need to think about both the limits and capabilities of machines and human beings. Likewise, uh, know, knowing and understanding context and inferring new ideas, where humans are very good at, but machines are bad at. So when we're designing a test, really what we should be looking at is how will this test look at the capabilities of humans in comparison with the limits of machines? How will it really determine whether a machine is capable of overcoming those limits to be like a human or not. We're also thinking a lot about how intelligence and language are related. So the Turing test is all about just having a conversation. Who here is convinced that having a conversation is sufficient to determine if someone's intelligent? Who here thinks that it's not enough? Okay, so there's a few hands. And that's something people consider. It's like having a long conversation can tell you if the thing's a really stupid robot, obviously, but there's a lot more to intelligence than just being able to talk. It's being able to make decisions, being able to solve problems in real time, being able to know I'm here, I have a body, and I can avoid that car. These are all things that are part of intelligence that require more than just conversation. They require action. Um, so we're really thinking, we really need to know if our test is going to be entirely based on conversation, if that's enough, if language and intelligence are sufficiently related. And finally, to design a good test of intelligence, most broadly, we need to understand intelligence. Now, do we understand intelligence? Well, that's a good question. Most people here are probably, you know, you're all proficient speakers of English. You're capable of looking at, giving me a definition of intelligence that will fit in a dictionary. You're capable of saying, okay, the guy on stage is moderately intelligent, the chair not so much, right? So you're capable of discerning what is intelligent and what's not. But giving a true definition of intelligence, of what the limit of intelligence is, what the minimum requirements for intelligence is, is a very difficult problem. It's a philosophical problem, first and foremost. So to, as the last part, I want to talk a bit about philosophy. So who here's done a bit of philosophy at school in RE? Uh, it's a few of you. Well, in case you need a quick definition, philosophy, as you may know, is one of humanity's oldest intellectual activities. Uh, you can think, you would typically think about old Greek guys in robes stroking their beards, but there were obviously a lot of women as well. Um, it's very hard to define. So defining what philosophy is is almost a philosophical question. So 
I hope I don't offend any budding philosophers in the room by giving an overly simplistic definition, but broadly, philosophy is all about asking questions about the nature of the world. What is the world about? What is it like? Also, you're asking why things are the way they are. Could they be otherwise? Are things necessary? You're asking questions about what's possible and why not if it's not possible. So possibility and possibility, why things are the way they are, what the nature of the world is, these are the fundamental questions philosophy seeks to address. And it's a very deep way of thinking about things. And philosophy plays a very important role in many sciences and certainly in artificial intelligence research because most of the uh, fundamental aspects of artificial intelligence, which is about creating intelligence, creating something that's like a human, those require asking questions about human intelligence, right? We're trying to create something that acts like a human brain, so we need to ask questions about what human intelligence is like. We also need to ask questions about what the conditions for consciousness are. So what makes us conscious and a chair unconscious, or not conscious? Could a computer start being conscious? Could a computer start saying, you know, I'm a person? We need to ask questions about language and the mind. So how does language relate to intelligence is, as I said earlier, an important question for the Turing test, for improving the Turing test, and it's a fundamental question we need to look at um, to solve that problem. It's also a fundamental question in philosophy. So the basic end line here is that artificial intelligence research requires thinking about philosophy. It requires thinking about something that is bigger than just the mathematics of thought, about how you can engineer a robot, about how you can build a computer. You need to think about the big questions. And so philosophy basically allows us to examine most of the problems we're going to deal with in artificial intelligence, as I said. Can computers think? The whole topic of this talk, which I'm from a computer science department. You're probably expecting a computer science talk that's strictly about programming. But this is effectively a philosophical question, um, which requires thinking about how humans are different from machines. So remember, we, we started this by talking about Alan Turing's notion of Turing machines, and he thinks that they're capable of reproducing everything that a human can do. But some people here might find this kind of weird and have been thinking this throughout the lecture. Does anyone here think that there's something fundamentally different about humans and machines that would make Mr. Turing wrong? Yes? So yeah, we're not, so you're saying, okay, we're made out of flesh, right? We're made out of flesh and bones and gunks of gray goo and computers are made out of circuitry. So that might actually be an important factor, although as long as we can do the same operations, it doesn't matter in Turing's mind. Does anyone else have any opinions about why we might be very different from machines? Okay, so likewise, one, uh, one strong objection that people have to Alan Turing's idea is that humans have something unique about them that uh, objects and perhaps animals don't have, which is consciousness or some believe that we have a soul, and that that's something fundamentally different from objects, so that therefore we can't have a machine, which is an object, which will be able to have all these human qualities. Uh, anyone else? Uh, I, I can hear all that quite clearly, but you're saying something. We have to have input, whereas humans can, humans can think without having input, right? We can make decisions spontaneously. Yeah, so, so all these are interesting objections, and there's no clear answer, right? When we're talking about the possibility of thinking machines, a lot of people have interesting opinions like this, which might show that it's fundamentally impossible. There are many respects in which we are very similar to machines. So, you know, the, the main part of the, uh, our thinking apparatus is the brain, which is, you know, just a bunch of neural pathways that uses chemical uh, reactions. And uh, that's very similar to how a machine works. So some people think, okay, we're very similar to machines, so why not? Some people think, okay, well, we're very different from machines. Maybe we have a soul. Maybe there's something unique about human experience. So maybe it's fundamentally different. So we need to think about these things. And once again, these are philosophical topics. Even if you have one opinion or the other, you need to think, okay, are any of the differences important to the core task here, which is creating a thinking machine? If you think that we have souls, fine, um, but are souls essential to being an intelligent being? Can something be intelligent without a soul? Can a soul grow in an intelligent being? You know, this is the interesting thing. It's like in thinking about artificial intelligence and in thinking about what seems to be a mathematical topic, an engineering topic, we end up thinking almost about theological questions. 
So anyway, the end line here is philosophy, as I said, is a guiding force in scientific work. Most scientific work, and especially young sciences like computer science, especially young topics like artificial intelligence. Uh, and in turn, scientific work can do something to validate philosophy, to help us test our philosophical thoughts. If you have a theory of mind, if you're a philosopher and you're thinking about here's how the mind must work, and that allows someone to build a working artificial intelligence, an intelligent machine, then perhaps that says that that theory of mind has some truth to it. So it's a two-way system. Uh, computer science needs philosophy, but philosophy can benefit from what we do in computer science. So in a sense, both theory and practice complement each other. So to summarize, um, th the third part, the Turing test is limited. There are a lot of open questions in it. Uh, to improve the test, we can't just ask questions that relate to strictly to science or mathematics. We need to think about human nature. We need to think about what it is that makes human, intelligent, uh, human beings intelligent, that makes human beings have this special ability to love and desire and want and act. And this requires thinking about philosophical thoughts, about philosophical topics, about what the world is like. It requires thinking beyond mere science. And in turn, the nice part is that it goes two ways that the computer science experiments we do, the systems that we build, provide feedback to our philosophy. So it's a new test bed, if you want, for philosophical thought. So to wrap up this talk, let's uh, see some conclusions we saw today. Turing machines are the general form of computers. They're the most basic form of a learning, teachable machine that you can give programs to. Can machines think? Well, Alan Turing thinks Turing machines can do anything a human brain can, so of course they, they can, as long as they have the right recipe, right? Um, so maybe Turing machines can think. If anything can think, maybe it's a Turing machine. Maybe a computer can think. There's a nice test for intelligence which will allow us to experimentally validate this hypothesis that Turing machines can think if we build one that we think can think, that we believe can think. But this test, as we saw, has many, many faults. There's many open questions, the length, the sort of questions we ask. We need to be critical about our own methods as scientists. And basically, to improve artificial intelligence, we need to think beyond just mathematics, beyond just science and engineering. And this might be a sort of depressing thought, is that it might be possible that artificial intelligence is never a reachable goal, that, it, that we're chasing a ghost, that we're chasing something that is not even possible. So why is this research so important, even if we're chasing something which we don't even know if it's completely possible? And this is common in beyond just artificial intelligence research. In physics, we don't know if, you know, in physics we want to have a unified view of the world, of the physical world. We don't even know if that's possible because there's so much uncertainty, there's so much inconsistency between our theories. Uh, but physicists still work every day on trying to get a unified world view of the world. Likewise, in uh, computer science, we don't know if we can do artificial intelligence, but we, we keep on looking for the solution. And it's important, first, because we learn from failure. And that's one of the nice things uh, in science is, you know, in, in real life, we feel very bad when we fail. Um, and that's natural. And you still feel pretty bad when your experiment fails as a scientist. But more often than not, we learn something through the failure. By, do, by doing the process, by, do, by building um, experiments, by building systems that we want to evaluate, we usually learn a lot along the way. And sometimes the failure tells us something about the world. Um, along the way, we also, yeah, as I said, we build a lot of things. So if you think about technology that you might use every day, so who uses Google Translate to cheat on their French or Italian tests? <laughs> okay, your teachers are watching, so it's fine if you don't put your hand up. I, I, when I was in school, I, I used Google Translate back when it wasn't very good um, to cheat on my Italian test when I got caught. So uh, don't do that. Um, but yeah, Google Translate, the internet, uh, self-driving cars, Technology of today and technology of tomorrow, a lot of this is the byproduct of looking for thinking machines. When we're trying to develop technologies that will allow machines to think, we build a lot of interesting things which are intelligent, but not as intelligent as humans along the way. So it's actually quite productive. Um, so what computer science needs right now is not just mathematicians, it's not just engineers, but we need people who can look at the big picture, we can look at the fundamental aspects of human nature uh, to help us guide this research. We need creative thinkers, we need crazy people, um, 
We need people who like philosophy, people who are creative, people who are artistic. And even if uh, at the end of this talk you think, I don't want to see another computer, or I'm never going to work in computer science, or I don't want to be an engineer. Even if at the end of this talk you think, I want to be an artist, or I want to be a philosopher, or I want to be a political thinker. Computers are going to have such a big impact in the future as they are having now. Then the search for artificial intelligence has the promise of yielding so many answers about human nature and about ourselves. So uh, whether or not you like computers, whether or not you like mathematics, I encourage you to keep on thinking about these thoughts because working on something you like like this is the most rewarding thing you'll be able to do in your lives. And uh, so come and join the fun. And Merry Christmas.